Well, again, let me say good morning, and uh, it's always a great day in the house of the Lord when we can begin with those baptisms. We are going to be continuing in our series on Samuel, and before I do, I want to announce an upcoming schedule change to Sunday mornings. Upcoming schedule change to Sunday mornings, beginning September 25th. Everybody got it? Sunday, September 25th, uh, we are uh, going to uh, uh, move to a new schedule, and l- let me explain, but, well, there it is, all right, uh, let's move on. <laughs> uh, the buildup was going to be that um, uh, the uh, new entrance is being used, I hope you're enjoying the new entrance in the back of the church, and the new children's space is being used. It's a great blessing. And the children and their teachers are both enjoying the great blessing of that new children's space. Uh, and I, I hope you're enjoying that. One of the great benefits of having that new children's space, all that children's education space, is that the place from which they left, the old children's space, is now available for adult education classes. So what that means is that we now believe we have enough Sunday school space, for now, to have one Sunday school hour for the whole church. So, before this space was available, we divided our Sunday school into two Sunday school hours. But now, starting September 25th, the schedule will be 8 a.m. worship in the sanctuary. This service will then be 10.30 worship in the rock. And everybody has Sunday school class at 9.15. Everybody's got Sunday school class at 9.15. Little bitty kids, all the way to senior adults, everybody in between, Sunday school at 9.15. Um, now, I, I, it's no secret we are a Sunday school church. Uh, when people <clears throat> come to Discover First, <clears throat> which, by the way, I need to pause and tell you just a little bit about Discover First. Uh, if you are not yet a member... We have, I offer a class. It's not mandatory, but if you want to join the church, if you want to know what it means to join the church, every other month I offer a class on Sunday night, 4 o'clock, it's 90 minutes long, child care and snacks, called Discover First. And at the end of that class, you can sign on the dotted line and be ready to be voted in, or we can set you up a baptism or whatever. But that's a great way to go from, I want you to be an attender for as long as you're comfortable. When you're ready to take that step in your spiritual journey of church membership, you come to Discover First, y'all. Last Sunday, I knew it was a good, a, a good group that had RSVP'd. We had 15 people rsvp for Discover First. Imagine my surprise when over 40 walked in. And this morning at Coleman First Baptist Church, we are welcoming in 39 new members into our fellowship. I know, I know. I, I didn't even heard of that. Oh. Uh, so I told you, God is doing something in our midst, and I, I, I don't know whether to label it revival or uh, all these baptisms and all this uh, uh, folks uniting in church membership, but I, I, I mean, do, a church welcoming 39 new members on a single Sunday, just a random Sunday in August, uh, in, absolutely incredible, and I, I, this is the work of God. And uh, uh, folks have been praying for years and years, and uh, the word of God has gone forth and been preached, and the word of God does the work of God by the will of God in the people of God. We're seeing that happen. Um, So anyway, all all this growth, all this growth obviously means there's change. And so 
That's it. Uh, In that, I got a little distracted. In that Discover First class, I tell people the expectations. I, you know, it's it's a lot to cover. I talk about a biblical basis for church membership. Listen, the next class is going to be in October. If you need to take it, but one of the expectations I tell members, it is expected of you to come to corporate worship. You need to worship the Lord corporately. Big church, we used to call it when I was a kid. You got to come to big church. But then you also need a smaller environment. Sunday school is that mid-sized group. It's not a small group necessarily, but that mid-sized group where you can get around God's word together. And then barbecues and, hey, after church, why don't you meet me? Let's go to lunch. Our families meet up. And you maybe, just maybe, you might make a friend. And over time, that can grow into a lifelong. You grow old with people and have, those, have that fellowship one with another. But I tell them straight up, uh, 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 large group worship, Sunday school experience, do you give, do you serve? That's an expectation for members. You said, was that an expectation for everybody? No, that's an expectation for members. That's what it means, part of what it means. So to, to grow in your faith, uh, it, it's a Sunday school church, and this puts all the Sunday school in one uh, one spot and that also gives options for worship so if uh you know a a grandparent or if you are coming or you want to go to the lake that day whatever you got 8 a.m worship then you can go to your sunday school at 9 15 does that make sense so so both worship services feed into one sunday school and while i'm on the topic of sunday school we're launching a brand new class today 40 somethings married couples in their 40s 40 ish roughly that's a brand new class launching today so so excited about what god's doing in the sunday school ministry um, that's really all I want to say, except for to this service, I got to say a little something else. Um, you've been not, so church starts at 930 and starting September 25th, the headline for this service is it's now 915. 15 minutes on a Sunday morning does not sound like a big deal until you've tried to find shoes for a six year old <laughs> and you realize 15 minutes is a big deal. So I'm asking you to take a step of faith and put 15 first. Because you're still going to get the 15 minutes. Y'all, you, do you realize this church is going to beat every other denomination to Cracker Barrel? So take that, <laughs> take that 15 minutes and put 15 first. I rarely ask you to do this. I never, I hardly ever. But everybody say, put 15 first. One, two, three. Put Now, I know, I know, I know, the struggle is real. I get it. 15 minutes on a Sunday morning, that means I probably have to arrive by 9 because i got to get coffee, i got to drop my kid. I understand all that. Uh, Is 15 minutes a big sacrifice? Is the struggle real? Yes. But what I want to ask you to consider is not if the struggle is real. I want to ask you, what's the real struggle? From the time a kid is born until he's 18, you got 936 Sundays. Ask somebody who's been at this senior graduate. Some of you, some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. When they're seniors and we recognize them on senior Sunday, ask somebody how fast that goes. You got 936 Sundays in those 15 minutes. Yeah, the struggle's real, but the real struggle is trying to cram in a bunch of uh, 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 Christian education in the last few minutes before you send them off to school. That's the real struggle. So take that 15. I know it's going to be a struggle. Get them here. Get in Sunday school. Uh, in, in that extra 15. I guess that, 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 that's my challenge. And then one, one, because I can't help myself, one last word about change in general. Any change in an organization, but especially a church, listen, change is the price you pay for a growing church walking under the blessing of God. This will not be the last change. This didn't come to me. I wasn't up on Mount Sinai and God handed me the schedule on clay tablets and this will be the schedule until I return, Okay. This will be the schedule until we outgrow the next thing, and it could happen more quickly than we think. So don't get 
comfortable. It's going to change. Listen, there are some big changes we've got to figure out, we've got to solve. One is our worship space here. Look, I mean, it's full in here. We've got to address the worship center issue. This schedule works as long as we can fit everybody in Sunday school. But this is what I know. Y'all, this is what I know. It comes from something I read in Experiencing God, a Bible study I did way back in college years ago. Henry Blackaby wrote this, God is moving, God is blessing. And here's what he wrote. This is it. The lesson for change is so simple. You cannot stay where you are and go with God. You cannot stay where you are and go with God. There will always be a point where it would feel so much more convenient just to stay where we are. It'd be so much more convenient. Oh, change is so inconvenient. It's convenient. And every, not, not first Baptist, every church, every church, not just us, every church has to come to these turning points where eventually they have to decide, honestly, we're good. We're full enough. I know enough people. The light bill gets paid every year in budget. It's fine. You know what, God? We're good here. And when that decision is made, God is a gentleman. He won't force himself. He'll just go move on and bless somewhere else. I don't ever want that. I want a church full of God chasers. And I will pay whatever inconvenient price of change there is to be where he is blessing. And I know you want that too. So that's, that. anyway, gets me excited. But that's, that's a word about change. So this is the schedule for now. Uh, for those of you who are, you know who you are? The new schedule, Sunday school at 9.15. For others of yourself, tell yourself, get to church at 8.30. That way you'll just have a hope of getting there. All right. Somebody asked me, I've told several people that. I said, dude, we're voting in 39 new members Sunday. I couldn't help myself. I told some church members that. Do you know everybody asked me the same thing? It was the first question out of multiple people's mouths. Pastor Tom, are you going to preach shorter that day to allow time to vote in 39 new members? You know the answer to that question. Why would you even ask that? All right, 2 Samuel. Here we go. Turn to 2 Samuel chapter 1. In our modern Bibles, 1 Samuel turns the page to 2 Samuel. That happened when they, uh, uh, the Greek uh, translators translated the Old Testament, which is in Hebrew, into the Septuagint. Because of the length of these books, they broke it up into 1 and 2 Samuel. But in the original Hebrew, it's just Samuel. It's just one book. It's meant to flow. There's no 1 Samuel 31, 2 Samuel 1. It just flows right in. And some of you, though, I, I, okay, I, I, to be fair, some of you are probably doing the math going, but we were in 1 Samuel. This series has taken several months. I mean, didn't you start this in May? So how much longer will 2 Samuel be? How long is this going to go on? That's a fair question. And I can tell you, 2 Samuel won't take nearly as long as 1 Samuel because 1 Samuel was 31 chapters. And 2 Samuel is... <clears throat> 24. So it's, I mean, it's going to fly. And so now I thought, but now is a good time to pause. Now is a good time to pause and ask why. Why are we doing this? Why go through an Old Testament book? I mean, with all, think about all that's going on in 2022, all the modern hurts and hangups and all the things we've got going on. And you're trying to raise a family and you're trying to get out the door. And now you got to get out by 915. All right. You got all this stuff going on. What does a 3,000 year, all the action took place 3,000 years ago. What does a book 3,000 years old have to do with a middle schooler in 2022? What does it have to do with trying to raise a kid or trying to care for an aging parent? What does this have to do with us? Well, the first thing you need to know about the Word of God is you never have to worry if this book is relevant. It's relevant because it's alive. The Bible is alive because God is alive. And the Bible is God's Word. And Hebrews 4 verse 12 says, the Word of God is living and 
active. And it's sharper than any two-edged sword because what it can do, it can pierce. It gets down into your motives. And you start reading this old book and you do it long enough, you start to realize this book's reading you. Romans 15, 4 says, whatever was written in former times was written for our instruction. So we're supposed to learn something from it. So that by endurance, Romans 15, 4 says, and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. So this book's meant to give us hope in the midst of, uh, you know, you, you read the newspapers, right? Didn't some old sage say, read not the times, read the eternities. If you dig the well deep enough, relevance becomes irrelevant. Everybody needs to know what happens to us after we die. Everybody needs to know whether or not we're right with God. It is impossible. But why Samuel? Why Samuel? It is impossible to overstate the importance of King David in salvation history. You cannot overstate the importance of King David. Uh, They line up at a museum in Florence to go see a statue of David. Ask any uh, 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 Jew who's not yet a Messianic Jew, uh, 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 not yet a Jew for Jesus. Ask an Orthodox Jew, they will tell you, King David. They wear, like we we might wear a cross necklace, they might wear a star of what? Star of David. For them, they realize, and we should realize, God did something monumental in the kingdom of David. Well, 1 Samuel told us the kingdom of Saul. 2 Samuel is what God does in the kingdom of David. John Woodhouse says the whole Old Testament either looks forward to or back at the kingdom of David. He says the whole thing's about kingdom. I think he's right. Here's what I mean. The, The reason you study this book is because of what it points to. Now, let me, let me see if I can go through the entire history of the universe briefly. Not just what we've gone up to, but also the entire history of the universe going forward and where it's going to end. So literally the entire timeline of humanity, space, and time for all eternity. Let's see if I can do it quickly. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. <laughs> and that little Eden was a kind of kingdom, wasn't it? God was the king. And the subjects, Adam and Eve, were like his royal regents, his image bearers to carry forth the good news of the king to every creature and every plant. And they rejected the kingly rule of God and wanted to be their own kings. They didn't like playing second fiddle, so to speak, to just be God's image bearer. They wanted to be king. And God didn't give up on them. And so they, 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 things went worse and worse and, and, and after the flood and then, and then God takes a man, Abraham, and he says to barren Abraham, I'm gonna make your descendants as me of the stars of the sky. I'm gonna make for myself a people and he draws his people and the people get in big trouble. They get all the way in Egypt and God rescues the people out of Egypt. You can read about it in Exodus with a mighty hand. He pulls them into the promised land and things get worse and God still won't give up on his kingdom and so he sends them judges and it just gets worse and worse. They keep turning their back on the king but he pro- and, and, and finally, Finally, they say, we want an earthly king. Give us an earthly king. And God gives them that earthly king, but it's not the king that they ultimately needed. He said, well, if you're gonna have a king, it needs to be under my kingship. They rejected it. And finally, he gives them his own anointed, a man after God's own heart, King David. Do you know what the Hebrew word for anointed is? The anointed one? Do you know what that that word is? Anointed, in, in how we translate the Hebrew into English, anointed one means Messiah. That's how you say anointed one. So the whole story is the story of Messiah. And when David's kingdom comes, people are celebrating. They're thrilled. They can't believe it. Finally, God's kingdom here on earth. Until what? Until we read in 2 Samuel, King David turns out he had some struggles too. And it's almost worse because we thought for sure David would be the one. And David has a great fall. You, you, you'll know the story. David and Bathsheba and Uriah the Hittite and all this stuff. You'll, you'll know it when we get to it. So David has this precipitous fall, this, this big drop off. It's like, well, David's not the one. Now what? The rest of the Bible, right? So from Genesis up through 1 Samuel tells all about pointing to this kingship of David. 
And then from 1 Kings all the way to Malachi, or as the, uh, uh, my friends in Long Island say, uh, the Italian prophet, Malachi. <laughs> Either way, whatever. From, from Kings all the way to Malachi is what? It's the story of prophets saying, yes, that's what David was, and it, he was God, man after God's own heart, but that was just a, a shadow of things to come. Don't you see? God is going to honor. He made a promise that there would always be a ruler from the lineage of David. There'd always be somebody from David's line always on the throne of God's people. There would always, it would never end, right? And he's promising. And the prophets begin to realize and they tell the people, turn back to God. He's not giving up on this promise. He is going to send a true and better David. He's coming. Every page of the Old Testament whispers his name. The best example is probably the prophet Jeremiah because he spoke these words when Israel is in ruins and Jerusalem's burned to the ground. And Jeremiah says, God hadn't given up on this prophet. Behold, the days are coming. Jeremiah 33 says, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the promise I made to the house of Israel, house of Judah. In those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David. And he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In other words, we have all these promises that there is an anointed one, David. And so the whole Old Testament is, who is this one? Who's this one? David came from Bethlehem. He was a shepherd. He was the anointed Messiah. Who is this true and better David? Who is this Messiah to come? Who is this anointed Messiah? And then the very first verse in the New Testament. Do you know it? Yes, Matthew 1, 1. But I mean, do, do, yeah. of all the ways the Bible could begin introducing us to Jesus, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Messiah, Greek word is Christ, the son of David. Promise made way back in 2 Samuel 7, promise kept when that brave little boy was born in a manger, born in, of course, Bethlehem. Y'all, it's one story. And when the true and better king comes, when God's anointed, not David, when the true and better David comes, he comes and does what? He announces his kingdom. God's kingdom is here. And in God's kingdom, people don't get sick. So when Jesus did a miracle, he was just showing them what life in God's kingdom's life. See, he would heal somebody and go, that's what it's like in God's kingdom. God's kingdom doesn't have demons. So he would tell the demons, y'all gotta go. Well, there's a bunch of us. I don't care, I'm the Lord. They all had to leave. Why? Because in God's kingdom, there's no demons. And God's kingdom, people live forever. So after he was crucified on Good Friday, he rose from the dead on Easter Sunday morning with all power in his hand. Why? Because in God's kingdom, people live forever. And then he empowers his kingdom regents. Way back in Adam and Eve, there were supposed to be image bearers declaring the kingdom to every creature. And now we do the same thing. It's called the church. And now when Christians pray, what do we pray? Let thy kingdom come. Let more and more people come under your godly rule. Let more and more people feel the peace of the king. Let more and more. We send out missionaries under the great commission of the king to the ends of the earth so that more people can hear the good news that Jesus is king. Come under the royal kingship of Jesus and one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Lord, he is the anointed one all to the glory of God the Father and then one day that trumpet's going to sound, that sky's going to rip open and there will be the return finally and fully and forever, the return of the king and heaven will meet earth and he will put all things under his feet he will reign and rule forever and ever as king forever like it was supposed to be way back in the garden the true and better David forever our king Jesus that's the history of the universe it's one story 
And if we get our heads and our hearts around what God does in the life of David, we get our heads and our hearts around what God is doing in the meta-narrative of Scripture. So I'm not saying all these verses are easy. I'm saying they will feed our soul from the Word of God. But since I used most of my time in announcing a schedule change, I will just try to take a, the first 16 verses of this. We won't even do the whole first chapter and uh, conclude here and look at this uh, 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 one incident. I'll make one application and then we'll try to get to the whole hope thing that preachers are supposed to get to at the end of a message. Uh, I won't, by the way, programming note, you may notice this. I don't legalistically, I won't do every single verse and every single word, you know, verse by verse. Uh, we, you know, obviously we won't do every uh, chapter. We'll have to uh, uh, move through some things because I want to get to the full counsel of the word of God. And there are, <laughs> uh, it is on my heart to get uh, to other books in the Bible this year. <laughs> Here we go, Second Samuel 1. After the death of Saul, when David had returned from striking down the Amalekites, uh, you guys all remember that? So while this was going on, we, the reader knows stuff that David doesn't know. We know that Saul died. We know how he died. If you were here last week or you read 1 Samuel 31, we know that while that was happening, David was striking down the Amalekites. The Amalekites burned down his town of Ziklag, which is in the Philistine country, and David and his men went and rescued the wives and children, brought them back, right? So David is having this great victory, and David remained two days in Ziklag. First verse, you preach a whole sermon about Jesus Christ. If I were going to preach a whole sermon about Jesus Christ from that first verse, which I would never do, that's crazy. You can't put a sermon within a sermon. But if I were to attempt it, I would make my three points after the death of Saul, David's great victory, two days that change everything. And I would say after the death of Saul, all hope looks lost. He's the anointed of God. We thought he was the one to redeem Israel. And I would say, does that remind you of anything? After the death of Jesus on Good Friday, they walked from Emmaus and they were so sad. We thought Jesus was the one to redeem Israel. We thought he was the king. And then I would say point two, David was having a victory. When everybody thought God had lost God was doing something nobody knew about. He was winning a victory. And when Jesus was hanging there on a cross, everybody thought the Messiah had lost, but he was winning a victory. And then David hung there for two days. Uh, David remained where he was for two days. And just like Good Friday and Silent Saturday, there was two days where nobody knew anything until a messenger came. And here that messenger came to Ziklag, but back then those women came running back from the empty tomb and they said, he's alive. That would be my sermon about Jesus if I were to preach it, but I wouldn't. Verse 2. On the third day, behold, a man came. Ah, here it is, a messenger. On the third day. I would point out that on the third day is a big deal in the resurrection. Okay. On the third day, behold, a man came from Saul's camp. Here it is again. Watch this. All throughout Samuel. Don't ever forget you as the reader are constantly being let into information that the people living it don't know. They don't know what's happening, but you are being given all this insider data from the narrator. So for example, we find out he's from Saul's camp. With All David knows is that he looks like he's in mourning. Look, with his clothes torn and dirt on his head. And when he came to David, he fell to the ground and paid homage. Now remember the context, David is in Ziklag. He has got his wife, wives, children, but he's there among the charred remains of his hometown. House burned to the ground, ashes everywhere. They're wondering what to do. This is an incredibly tense two days. Why? Not only do we have to rebuild Ziklag, where is Ziklag? 
It's in the land of the Philistines. Why? Because David and everybody's been living a lie. They've convinced everybody they're Philistine traitors. How long can we keep this up? And now, he, remember, he was about to have to go fight with the Philistines, but at the last minute, God delivered him. Well, now, y'all, what, now what's going to happen? How long can we keep this up? There's a war between the Philistines and the Israelites. And so David's like, on the one hand, of course I want the Israelites to win. I want Saul to win. But if Saul wins, it means he can march right into Ziklag and kill us all. We're dead if Saul wins. On the other hand, if the Philistines win, then I'll be so sad because it means all my loved ones and all my family, that the tribe of Israel is dead. But, but, but worse, like they're eventually going to find out we can't keep this lie up forever. What are we going to do? And then this messenger comes. And David, like we think, like, oh, he's in mourning, so he's coming with bad news. Yeah, but bad news for which team? David doesn't know. Follow me now. David thinks that the messenger thinks that he's with the Philistines. So bad news for somebody who thinks what David thinks he thinks would mean that he's in mourning to tell the bad news that all our Philistine brothers are dead. Does that make any sense? So you understand, so he's, he's still a little guarded. Like, I don't know, I gotta figure out who this guy is because if he's in mourning, he may be mourning to tell me that the Philistines. So, he de- so here, here you go. He, he demands, pr- we'll, we'll get to that. Okay. David said to him, where do you come from? And he said to him, I've escaped from the camp of Israel. David, oh, okay. Okay, so this guy obviously knows that I've been living a lie and I'm secretly pro-Israel. Okay, great. So uh, 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 David said to him, okay, how did it go? Tell me. I love that, that you get the not only how did it go, but the tell me. You can feel the urgency of King David coming through the scriptures, the intensity. And he tells David what we, the reader, already knows. And he answered, okay, the, the people fled from the battle. And also many of the people have fallen and are dead. And Saul and his son Jonathan are also dead. Now, as for what happens next, I can only speculate. This is David's worst nightmare. We think he would fall on the ground and tear his clothes. And he does in a minute, but not first. At first, he's in denial. It could be that he's in shock. It could be that there's something not quite right about this messenger. He, this messenger is just a little sus. And so he's a little uh, nervous that uh, uh, something's not right. We learn in a minute something's not quite right. So either way, David demands proof. Verse five, David said to the young man who told him, how do you know that, how do you know that Saul and his son Jonathan are dead? And the guy's response makes any reader, if you've even halfway been paying attention, we know, we were given by the narrator, which is authoritative, 1 Samuel 31. We know what happened to Saul. And so there's gonna be some red flags. If you've even halfway been paying attention, there's gonna be some red flags in this guy's story. Make you go, what? Verse six, and the young man who told him said, uh, by chance, <laughs> I happened to be on Mount Gilboa. And there was Saul leaning on a spear and behold, the chariots and the horsemen were close upon him. I'm sorry to interrupt this guy, but like, I'm, really, bro? Yeah, it was the craziest thing. By chance, y'all can believe this, I just happened to stumble upon a war. And not just, I was surprised everybody. And uh, not just a war, I stumbled into the 
heat of the battle, the one place where literally the king is being gunned down by these archers, archered down, arrowed down, and the chariots are all around him. And I would tell you, I'm minding my own business. And I just kind of walk out there. I'm, whoa, there's a war going. No one believed it. The guy's like, yeah, no, you're not going to believe it. And the reader's like, we don't believe it. You are a liar. Verse 7, yeah, and when he looked, when Saul looked behind him, uh, he saw me, <laughs> and I called to him. You, you know how you, when you are nervous and you have to make up a story as you go along, you add all these extra details that you, you would literally, this whole verse is extraneous data. And it's a great way, by the way, to tell when your kids are lying because they invent like the all, and you're like, yo, if you'd kept it short, you'd have gotten away with it. You know? <laughs> but it's like all this extra data, you know? Yeah, he, he looked. Yeah, and after looking, he saw me. Yeah, that looking will do that. Uh, and he called to me with his voice <laughs> through sound waves. <laughs> and I answered, here I am. Uh, and now, I don't know when it dawns on him. He, can, he thinks he can score big points with David. And he said to me, who are you? And I answered, uh, I'm an Amalekite. And he said to me, uh, stand beside me and kill me, for anguish has seized me, and yet my life still lingers. Now, now, okay, now when you read that, you go, well, he may have been close enough or heard the story from somebody that that's got a little kernel of truth. You remember what really happened was Saul told his armor bearer, kill me because I don't want to die at the hands of the Philistines. And the armor bearer refused. Saul took his own life, fell on his own sword, and then the armor bearer fell on his sword. But I will say all good lies have a kernel of truth. And that's what he's doing there. So I, uh, verse 10, so I stood beside him, and here you can tell he's proud because he knows what he's doing. This is King David. I have, I have taken out your enemy. I have cleared the way. Nothing now stands between you and the throne. You're welcome. So I stood beside him and killed him. And then I think he didn't get the reaction he wanted, so he's like, well, he was going to die anyway. <laughs> Because I was sure he could not live after he had fallen. It was, it was a mercy killing, you know, but I, I, I killed him. Now, here it is. Here's the proof. I killed the Lord's anointed. And I took the crown that was on his head and the armlet that was on his arm. And I have brought them here to my Lord. Remember his posture? Where is he? He's on the ground. Homage. Kneeling before the anointed once and future king. And he knows what he's doing. I killed him. You're welcome. And basically what I'm doing here, I, random Amalekite, am hereby doing the coronation of the new king. I'm the first one to bring you the news. I killed your enemy. And now, long live the king. Here's your crown. Here's the insignia that the king wore. And now, I guess all that remains is probably to talk about my reward. Right? He can't believe it, right? Now, more than likely. David, here's the problem. David has nothing else to go on except the guy's word. We have the whole story. So we can see what David can't. We know the guy's lying. And, and, and say so that's not how it happened. And if it did, by the way, if it happened like that, if, if you were really that close to Saul and he had a battle, you would not have lived to tell about it. You'd be dead right now. Okay. No, what happened was, as an Amalekite, you, you were sort of neutral. You didn't like the Israelites. You didn't like the Philistines. But over time, you could glom on to one of those two sides and sort of be like a scavenger. You would sort of hang around the camp. You'd be friendly with the camp, a sort of alliance of convenience. And, and these scoundrels would uh, hang out by these battlefields. And then after the war, uh, uh, it, you basically try to beat the victor to the spoils. You would try to come in and scavenge all the plunder. And remember in chapter 31, it did take the Philistines some time before they got to the body of Saul. So he gets there first. 
There is a little irony while all this is happening. At the exact moment David was plundering the Amalekites, this Amalekite was plundering Saul. So you scavenged, you found the king's body, and you did the math. You figured you'd be the first one to bow to the new king, and you'd get a great reward. Now that David, you're safe, and you're the king. It was, on the part of the Amalekite, a grave miscalculation. Because what happens next is the last thing the Amalekite would have expected. The last thing anyone would have expected, unless we wouldn't follow along in 1 Samuel. Verse 11, then David took hold of his clothes and tore them, and so did all the men who were with him. And they mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and for Jonathan, his son, and for the people of the Lord and for the house of Israel because they'd fallen by the sword. And the Amalekites are like, uh-oh, that's, that's not what I expected. <laughs> and to be fair, that's not what anybody would expect. How could David not rejoice at the death of his arch enemy? Had the roles been reversed, make no mistake, Saul would have rejoiced at the death of David. There'd have been no weeping and mourning and fasting in the camp of Saul. And yet David wept. The Amalekite never saw it coming. But the careful reader of Samuel so far would say, well, honestly, that's exactly what we expected from God's king. David has said he's lived by one principle. You don't kill the Lord's anointed. I'm not going to kill the Lord's anointed. And he's been righteous and blameless in that. And now that the Lord's anointed is dead, he weeps. So the Amalekite, this scheming Amalekite who thinks he's going to score big points with David, didn't count on the character of God's king. He thought God's king operated just like he did. So David said to the, the story writes itself from here. David said to the young man who told him, where do you come from? And he answered, I'm the son of a sojourner, an Amalekite. Well, the sojourner's important detail it means you should have known better. The sojourner in the Israelite Torah, you had foreigners, sojourners, aliens, resident aliens. They were allowed to come live with the people of God. And if they did, they had to follow the same. They were under the Torah, just like God's people. And so he's saying, you were under that law. You knew then you were not to touch the Lord's anointed. So what you did was murder. The penalty's death. That's what he says. You should have known better. David said to him, you, really, really, sojourner? Son of an Amalekite, how is it that you were not afraid to put out your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? That's a rhetorical question, so there is no answer. Then David called one of the young men and said, go, execute him. And he struck him down so that he died. Now we read that and we're like, whoa, you know, our modern sensibilities, that's, that's really harsh. David, haven't you ever heard the expression, don't kill the messenger? It's like David anticipates these objections in verse 16. I'm not killing him because of his message. I'm not killing the messenger this is the death penalty for capital murder. Look, and David said to him, your blood be on your head, for your own mouth has testified against you, saying, I have killed the Lord's anointed. You signed a guilty plea. I'm not killing him for the message. I'm killing him because you murdered the Lord's anointed. In fact, in fact, I think Mary Evans points out that there's great irony here. Had the Amalekite told the truth, the irony is he probably would have been rewarded. It was when he wanted to embellish it for his own gain. Had he just been like, listen, I came from the battle. Saul's dead. I know you have a um, complicated relationship with Saul. Uh, what with all that? He's trying to kill you, and you're stealing his spear and cutting his rope. Anyway, um, but I know you're best friends with Jonathan. Anyway, I'm sorry to tell you this, but they're dead. I came to tell you the news. That's how it went. He probably would have thanked him for that message and ironically even perhaps rewarded him. I just want to make one application from this line of Malachi. And the application goes like this. It is way too easy to distance ourselves from this lion scoundrel and Amalekite. 
Way too easy. Because we are, first of all, we are separated by 3,000 years of history. And so we go, glad I'm not like this guy. And not only the 3,000 years of history, we are separated, we think, by millions of miles of morality, morality miles. Why? Because I would never do something like that. Fair. In the sense that you have never murdered a king on an ancient battlefield called Gilboa. You have not. Fair enough. But what was this guy's deal? What was going on behind the scenes? What was his thinking? What, what led to all this? He was deluded. Follow me now. He was deluded into thinking he could win some advantage by a lie, by a deception, by a broken promise or a betrayal. He thought he could get ahead by shading the truth, by embellishing, by lying, by deceit. God says he desires truth in the inward parts. But this guy figured, well, I can fool other people. I can make a life out of fooling other people. Now, when you put it like that, we're not so far apart from the Amalekite. Now, there are all sorts of lies. There's all sorts of, of ways. I mean, most of us think of kind of big lies where we want to avoid punishment or we want to get some good. And so we take a, you know, the, the sort of bold-faced lie. But there's all sorts of lies. This Amalekite was, was allowing himself to be thought of what he was not. I mean, in, in some ways, the biggest lies we tell, you might just say, are sort of image management. What is image management? Image management means I curate what you think of me very carefully. So if you think of me a little higher than I really am, I just might forget to correct you on that. Or if you uh, think that I you know, am a little better off, I might just forget to correct you. I will curate an image in front of other people. What am I doing? Image management. That's, that's a form of deceit. It's a form of deception. That's what this Amalekite's doing. Now you take that human instinct for image management and you add the kerosene of social media. And now what do you got? You got a whole nation of Amalekites. What are we doing? We're managing our image on a grand scale. And if we're not careful, we become two people. We become who we are and who we pretend to be. I read a study recently about young people and Instagram posts. And they don't post, if they take a picture with someone else, the study suggested that young people don't take a picture and post on Instagram with someone that they feel is less popular than them or they feel is less attractive or less powerful or wealthy. They only post a photo if the person they're with is more attractive, more wealthy, better social standing. Why? Because you want the whole idea is to build up your image. And if you take your photo with someone who can do you no good socially, then it won't help you to post it on social media. Isn't that interesting? What are you doing? We're doing what we all do. I'm not picking on young people. I'm not picking on Instagram. I'm saying if you're not careful, you've got this person that you pretend to be. David's righteous character shattered this idea that the Amalekite thought he could profit from his crimes. And the Bible says, just like this young man, this Amalekite, we're all going to appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one can receive what he's done in his body, whether good or evil. Dale Ralph Davis says, we're all going to face a D-day, and the D is for disclosure. There's nothing concealed that will not be disclosed. Listen, you can fool other people. Right now, if you're living a lie, you can, I'm telling you, you can probably get away with it. I, I, not always, I know, but there's a chance in which I just want to tell you the truth. You can fool other people. What I'm saying is you cannot fool God. 
So this is my application. This is my takeaway from this Amalekite. I can put it in one sentence, and I would put it to you like this. God cannot bless the person you pretend to be. He can only bless you. God cannot bless the person you pretend to be. He can't pour out a bunch of blessings on a social media profile. He can pour out blessings on you. He can't bless the person you pretend to be. He desires truth in the inward parts. And that is convicting. And if there needs to be truth in your life, truth before God, truth before other people, come to him. Come clean. It's convicting, but I hope it leads ultimately to hope. Brandon's going to come and lead us in a time of response. Prepare our hearts for the response. God's a God of truth. His truth is like an arrow. It convicts. It pierces. And as uh, Brandon's coming out, you, you know, I, that, the one verse that kept ringing in my head, I thought, I have heard this before. I've heard this before. Is that last verse, what, what, what David says about the Amalekite. Look at verse 16. Just one more time. David said to him, your blood be on your head, on your, you, for your own mouth has testified against you, saying, I've killed the Lord's anointed. And I kept thinking, where have I heard that before? You have killed the Lord's anointed. And that's when it dawned on me. All week, I'm like, I've heard that. That sounds really familiar. It dawned on me. There's a place in the New Testament where Peter is preaching at Pentecost. And he says in Acts chapter 2, he basically preaches a sermon to all these gathered, I mean, the, the high priests are there, the Pharisees, basically the people who would have literally had Jesus crucified. But also there's this massive crowd gathered of these Jews trying to figure out what's going on. And Peter, basically, the theme of his sermon is Jesus was the true and better David. Jesus was the true and better David. And so he's like quoting David, and I'll, I'll, for brevity's sake, I'll just kind of condense Peter's sermon at Pentecost. Men of Israel, Jesus of Nazareth is a man attested to you. You saw his miracles. You saw his works. You saw him hang on a cross. Death couldn't hold him. He raised from the dead. Even David predicted. He says, brothers, I say with you confidence about the patriarch David. David died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. You guys are all about David. David's the anointed one. Well, David is dead. But David was also a prophet, being therefore a prophet, knowing that God had sworn with him an oath that he would set one of his descendants on his throne. We're going to get to that. 2 Samuel 7, God promises there'll always be a descendant of David on the throne. David foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Messiah, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that were all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God. And having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, But he himself said, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel, therefore, know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, Lord and Messiah, this Jesus whom you crucified. You see what he's doing? He's saying, listen, The Amalekite stood before the righteousness of David and told a lie, and it was a death penalty for him. How much more than for the true and better? We've all, what's the difference? We deserve the punishment that fell on that Amalekite. In fact, we probably deserve more because David was just a human, you know, he's just a, a fallen person like everybody else. Jesus, the true and better son of David, never sinned. He never did anything wrong. And so to stand before that David with our lies and with our image management, with all our sins, We, there's a sense in which we have crucified this Jesus. By our own hand, we've killed 
the Lord's anointed. Boy, that's what sin is. When you, when you really get down to it, and if you can stomach the truth, that hammer that drove those nails, it wasn't, it, it was our sin. Well, though that's what we deserve, the Amalekite <laughs> stood before nothing but the law and justice of God, and he stood before David, but we stand before a true and better David. And that's why when, the, when Peter preached that sermon, he gave an invitation, which is what I'm about to do. And it says, when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart. And they all asked him, they asked Peter, they said, brothers, what do we do? Peter said, repent. Turn from your sin, turn toward Christ. There's hope. Be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, on account of the forgiveness of your sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, the promises for you and your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord God calls to himself. That same promise is still for us. The offer of forgiveness. That we who deserve what was poured out on that Amalekite, instead, can you imagine? King Jesus, our true and better king, he stood in our place. He bore our sins on that cross. He died for you in your place. It was your life or his. And he said, I'll die that you might live. He bore that punishment for us and our salvation that we might receive the mercy of God. That promise is still available from the true and better King, Jesus. Let's pray. God, I ask that you would grant to anyone here who does not yet know you as King that your kingdom would come in their life. You, the risen King, the true and better David, would rule and reign in their life. And they would submit to you before it's eternally too late. They would enjoy your peace now and they would enjoy your righteous reign. And Father, I pray for believers. I pray for anyone who's a believer, but they feel like they're living a lie and they need to come clean. They need truth in the inward parts that today would be that day. And they would confess to you. They'd come clean to you. Confess to those that they need to and, and walk under your blessing. You can't bless the person we pretend to be you can bless us you desire truth you psalm 32 when i kept silent my my everything wasted away i confessed my sin it was like a burden was lifted and i asked that god for anybody wrestling there that they would not leave without getting right with you whatever it is lord thank you that you're a true and better king do in your royal rule what we need done in our lives in jesus name we pray amen would you stand to your feet